Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Alec Mappa Hot Mess with Matthew Dempsey, psychotherapist. Um, Matthew's out today. I'm out today because it's the holidays, but we didn't want to leave you high and dry without any content. We've had a ton of drag queens on the show from RuPaul's Drag Race uh, and RuPaul's Drag Race Canada. And they're always great guests because um, they all have a story. Now, I love drag queens because to me, they're like superheroes. And hearing the story behind the drag queens is kind of like a, the superhero origin story. It's 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 a you know Peter Parker getting bitten by the spider or or Superman landing from another planet. We get to hear about the person behind the drag queen and the journey they took in order to get to this place of boldness and and self acceptance. And for that reason, I think drag queens are really really. Um, well, the ones we've had on the show, I can't speak for all of them, but the ones we've had on the show tend to be very liberated people, very um, colorful individuals. You don't have to encourage them to be interesting. And they all have a great story. And uh, we've had Eureka O'Hara and Peppermint and Coco Peru and Benda La Creme and Trixie, Bob the Drag Queen. I've you would not believe it. You name it, they've been on the show. And so because Matthew and I are gonna, aren't going to be here this week, um, we want to uh, put together this package of, uh, of the best of hot mess drag queens. Uh, so uh, tune in, stay tuned, and we'll be back after these important messages. One of our first guests was Peppermint, and uh, we got to talk about her experience as a trans woman, um, counting on her friends and and navigating relationships. Now, I've known Peppermint for a couple of years, but I felt like during this conversation, we got to know each other even better. With me, the sex edition was about like when I was coming out, I was 14 years old. I was a skinny little Asian boy. Um, and all of the predominantly pornographic images were big white guys. And mm-hmm. I felt like if I wasn't that, I was ugly. So anytime somebody had sex with me, the validation and the rush of that mm-hmm. was so amazing to me mm-hmm. that anybody mm-hmm. found me. Biz- it, to me, it was like, oh, my God. It was like, you know, winning the rush of the sex was so incredible to me. And then at, the longer it went on, the more re- I realized I was numbing myself out from all the things that I needed to look at within. Mm-hmm. Because the what was happening to me was I was like the I was in the addict phase of you're having more sex and it's becoming less satisfying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was yeah, kind of the phase I got into like, yeah. or I would have sex with somebody I'd be like, oh, I didn't need to do that. I didn't, you know. I'd, and then finally, I was with somebody who was so demonic that I was kind of like it was really like a mirror of my self worth. Right. Like, the longer I'm with this person, I'm affirming that I hate myself. That's the point at which that right the minute before that sentence is the song best sex. 
Uh, okay. The moment before that, I know that I mentioned like having met my partner through that encounter. Yeah. But really, best sex is all about that search. All those people that were flipping through the roller deck before that, and realizing that like whether it's a one night stand or your regular, your uh-huh. old faithful who comes over, who who you already <laughs> know yeah. has no redeeming qualities, and you don't even like this person. But yeah. you're allowing them into your be- into your body. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's like dripping with self-loathing and all of those things you talked about. Uh, but, you know, we end up doing it because a lot of times we don't see any other options. And especially as trans people and trans women, we're in a particular place where our partners, our sexual partners, mm-hmm. uh, are often come into the space with that frame of mind already. They're bringing the self-hate, the loathing, the closetedness of oh, one, yeah. not wanting anyone else to know that they're right. uh, into yeah. trans women shame. Uh, for fear of being labeled gay. And so they have the shame. And that ultimately always gets passed on to the, the lady. <laughs> or right. the and it endangers you. I mean, those are really perilous situations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Has there been anything that you've been able to um, be more aware of or learn to kind of keep an eye out for if it's more of that kind of shit that can come up with guys that you're going to meet or date or hook up with? Well, I mean, there's a protocol, like, you know, always make sure you text your girlfriends the face and like who's coming over. Right. Mm-hmm. I met this dude on on such and such. And then half the time they're like, oh, honey, Johnny. Oh, yeah, I know. him. You know, yeah. and so that's that's a comfort knowing that he might not be a murderer. But the, by, the sa- by the same token, you're like, oh, well, can't even find anybody who hasn't slept with all my friends. Right. Uh, because <laughs> our, our dating pool is extremely small. Yeah. Yes, Madison calls that a safety plan. Yeah, that's, like that's, the, yeah. that's what she mm-hmm. talks about on her platform, that if mm-hmm. you go out, don't go out with a bunch of guys you don't know. Um, mm-hmm. Let your girlfriends know where you are in order to, you know, not get hurt. Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. what it is. That's part of it. And then there's obviously recognizing the red flags, uh, you know, because all of these folks, I mean, obviously, we're t- ultimately we're, we have to acknowledge that, you know, uh, with 33 murders of trans people so far this year, yeah. that many of the murders are at the hands of our intimate partners, like mm-hmm. intimate partner violence and people that are uh, who are in sexual relationships with us. Yeah. Uh, more often sexual relationships that are casual or, or, or sometimes they're, um, you know, kind of a, a transactional, uh, client, you know, relationship right. or a right. sex worker, uh, not always, but those, many of those relationships end up turning dangerous, but it's not because the person just wants to kill the trans person. It's because the person, the murderer would rather kill a trans woman than have anyone else know. And right. so those situations are really dangerous. But all that aside, there's still really toxic situations that we end up in. I've had, of talking to all my girlfriends, I've, and so we've slept in common with some guy, I've heard stories about others. Uh, you know, there's this one guy, I won't say any names, who who is notorious um, and has seen all the girls who, uh, where he, after sex, wants to like cleanse himself so severely that sometimes oh. bleach is involved you think he's friends oh, wow. with donald trump and yeah. the i, I was know, with a religious guy who used to pray after having sex yeah oh, he, wow. would, he would kneel and then he'd kneel again mm-hmm. oh. <laughs> uh, crying <laughs> one uh, vomiting like all the entire you know i mean and how do you and what do you what is a person supposed to feel yeah, right. seriously that, that's, that happens to you you have yeah. to that. that's awful do you love Bendela Kramen? So do we. We talked about 
uh, growing up queer, using what you think makes you different to your advantage. And uh, she also talked about how uh, grateful she was to be having a public discussion about mental health with me and Matt. Here's Ben De La Creme. You were the first person, one of the first people on Drag Race to really kind of openly talk about depression yeah. and, and, and grieving. Um, and that's what this show is all about. Yes. So uh, let's let's unpack a little bit and, and tell us about your upbringing in Connecticut. Yeah. You know, um, I was a really kind of uh, isolated kid. Um, I grew up very close with my mother. Surprise, yeah. surprise. And um, <laughs> uh, the, the universal gay narrative. But, yes. Um, I. Uh, I grew up very close to my mother. She was an artist and she really influenced a lot of of how I developed very early. Mm. Uh, my dad and I were less close. I mean, there was nothing bad about my dad, but it was sort of, you know, we were like both like, oh, okay, we have a mutual friend and my mom more than anything. Okay. You know? And yeah. so um, she passed away when I was, well, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit because I was just also a super queer little kid. And it was like obvious, like my parents, like, Apparently, when I was like seven, they started having conversations about yeah. like, oh, okay, what what are we gonna do? Like what? how? Like what was what was really super yeah. queer about you? I mean, I it just was a stripper always... heel at Thanksgiving. What's that? It was a stripper heel at Thanksgiving. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, not far off, right? Yeah. Like I like I just always really um, had a performative feminine flair that came yeah. really natural. You know, it was. It was never me. I wasn't even aware of it. So I wasn't really putting anything on. But I yeah. um, but I loved, loved, loved all of the, you know, sort of feminine, female, powerful archetypes that I saw on TV and in, mm -hmm. in films. And that really influenced just how I moved, how I spoke. And it always did since before I was aware of that. Um, and... So, and I just always was very artsy and I liked to express that in my mode of dress and everything else, you know, and my mom let me pick my clothes as a kid, which is like generally not the greatest idea for anyone. <laughs> um, so my mom passed away when I uh, was 13, which is of course mm. right around when I was figuring out that I yeah. was a queer kid, yeah. Yeah. that all the kids who had been calling me faggot were actually right. Okay. And... Um, so when she died, I really lost my support system. I was living in a um, a small town in Connecticut, mm. uh, sort of, uh, you know, and it's that weird, it's that mix of conservative and like faux liberal that you see a lot in Connecticut mm. or you yeah. know, in New England. Okay. Yeah. All right. um, and so there weren't many people like backing me up and the kids at school just thought I was like super weird and I got sort of bullied a lot and beat up eventually once I was, you know, sort of at high school age when, Oof. you know, kids suddenly feel permission to punch each other. Um, and, uh, and it was just rough. I mean, I was deeply grieving for my mom. Mm. She was like sort of the one voice in my life that said, I was okay. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. My dad wanted to be there for me, but he was so in the throes of grieving that right. there was uh, a lot of emotional caretaking from the kid to the adult, you know? It parentified you. Oh. Yeah. So yeah. you, so you are, so you left having, or find yourself having to care for your own dad then. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Was it just you? Do you have any other siblings or? Just me. So it was Oh, so that's a lot. Yeah. And we're like, you know, we're living I grew up in like this old dilapidated farmhouse in the middle of the woods in Connecticut. Like a oh, wow. neighbor was a mile away. So it was very oh, isolated. Oh, see, you, said, you said Connecticut. So I went to like ordinary people. I went to Mary Tyler Moore and Tim Hutton. Yeah. Like you suburbia. Know, 
It's yeah. yeah, it's like we lived in a town uh, that was very it was like Stepford Wives at the center. And um, then it sort of expanded into like the woods. And so we lived at the outskirts. And so I was had this like isolated, haunted, you know, upbringing. And then and then day to day had to go to like Stepford Wife school. Right, so it was like right. really the worst of both worlds. Uh, right. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's the thing with queer kids, man. It's like we've talked a lot, 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 a lot about this. For me, growing up, being teased, and and I grew up in San Francisco. You know, I still teased, and even teased in my own home. What that did for me was I lived in my imagination all the time. Mm-hmm. In yeah. my imagination, there was always a musical. It was I was always singing, thinking about singing in the rain, or that's entertainment, or like I lived in my imagination. Like I remember, like getting, and I was that kid of like it's obvious, you know. But I remember we got like we went to see the ice capades or something, and I I would furtively look at the the souvenir program to look yeah. at the costumes and everything because some part of me knew that it was it was too it would be, it would have been too embarrassing and bald to be looking at look at the spiked dress <laughs> <laughs> to somebody who's experienced kind of the level of sadness or the level of um yeah sadness that you have what, what would be your hot message to that you know i think it's just like there's you're not alone mm-hmm. there is absolutely nothing wrong with you. Uh, And in fact, um, for me, a lot of the things that I've beat myself up for most in my life are inextricably linked to the things that I value about myself and that are that I'm valued for, Um, you know, and uh, and I I think that if people talk about these things more and I so appreciate that you guys do this podcast yeah. because it's that destigmatization that, right. um, you know, I mean, it was me hearing artists I respect yeah. talk about their struggles yes. that made me realize there some of my favorite creatives yeah. have this struggle yeah. and yeah. it made me feel more like I had a power, right? Yeah. Like it's, a lot of what we think about as our failings are actually our superpowers. Yes. Oh, I love that. Alaska Thunderfuck. It's so much fun to say her name out loud. Um, she talked about dealing with the negative aspects of social media after being on television and protecting, this is my favorite expression. She said, you have to protect the squishy part of yourself. That's my new favorite word. Here's Alaska. Well, you told our producer that after the second time you were on for mm-hmm. um, for uh, All Stars, you experienced a bit yeah. of a backlash. What was that about? Um, well, I threw it. I threw a fit on the show because mm-hmm. I was doing really good the whole season, and then I did really bad, and so. Instead of doing In what the relative I do, makeover challenge, I'm a super fan, so I, I was uh-huh. And my mom was there. So mm-hmm. they were like, so I was sitting on the stage and they were like, you're ugly. Your mom is ugly. Um, you're terrible. And, um, and I was like, and so I freaked out. And so instead of doing what I would do at home, which is like go in my room and freak out and cry mm-hmm. and write mm-hmm. my journal, mm-hmm. instead of doing that, I had eight cameras on me. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I just sort of like let it like explode. And I was like, and so I threw a fit. I started like I tried to bribe one of the contestants to like not <laughs> vote me out. Um, 
And it was just a really like ugly moment that I'm used to with myself. Sure. I, I live with that monster every single day, mm. but the drag race audience had only seen the, you know, lighthearted, wacky, funny, right. Wacky right. version of me. Yeah. And so it was like, I had this community that was so supportive of me for years and they were rooting for me and they were behind me. And then all of a sudden with one episode of television, <gasps> it completely 100% turned um, no. the other direction. And it was, you're a snake, you're a fake ass bitch. I used to be your fan and now I'm Oof. not. And it was that. As it was just a maelstrom of that. And I mean, the show was bigger than it had ever been at that time. Right. So the and it was real time. Was, it was while the show was happening. Yes. Yeah. A show that you filmed like a year ago is uh-huh. now on the air. And, and so now, I knew. Yeah. So that whole year, I knew this was coming. I knew the episode was coming. I knew it was going to be disastrous. I didn't know oh, how shit. bad. I knew it was coming. Then it happened. And then it was just like this thing that had been my identity, which yeah. was like. I'm Alaska from Drag Race. Uh, I have I have um, a community of people who, yeah. who loves me and supports mm-hmm. me and loves my music and the work I'm putting out. And then all and that had been so much my identity. Yeah. yeah. And then suddenly it was like, oh no, no, you are bad now. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Alaska, what do you remember the moment? Like, was it you saw something on social media or what was the moment that you started to realize everybody was turning? It was, and I, you know, I. And by I, everybody, is it like a couple of haters or is it like a whole wave no, of yuck? No, it was everyone. It was mm. everyone. And I'm not the person who delves into the comment section right. uh, because it's a toilet bowl and it makes me feel like shit. I yeah. can't take but, it. I yeah. won't look. I, right. won't, like, I don't Same. read reviews. Like people say you yeah. read reviews. It's like, no, because you no. take it too personally. If it's good, right. I take it personally. Then exactly. I'm like, I'm mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. And if it's bad, then mm-hmm. I'm shit. And you yeah. know, it's just, no. Yeah. But this was to the point where it, it wasn't even just in the comment sections. It was tweets at me and it was messages to me and it was emails that it was like, it was like, I couldn't even just say, Oh, I'm not going to turn it on. It was like every time I picked up this this phone, yeah, it was, it was people telling me that I'm awful and I'm a monster. Alaska for you, when, you know, when did you realize that you were maybe kind of like going through like a heavier kind of like mood, that darkness, like, how did you, how did you identify that? And then what did you do with it? How did you get through it? Well, I mean, I think the, um, I think I started to really delineate a separation. So I became like really way more private about Mm. my real life. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And not wanting to just put everything out on the table and just becoming like really protective of the like squishy human being that was behind the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And then it, then it was like, and then, I mean, as far as like outwardly, I just completely absorbed it and owned it and said, yes, I am. I am the snake queen bitch. So I'm, I'm a, I'm a nasty fucking 
monster. <laughs> so I so so I'm gonna write nasty fucking monster on a t-shirt and sell it to you. You know? So it was like <laughs> ownership. So, it sounds like ownership. Yeah. Right. Totally I had to completely own it because it was like it was no surprise to me the way I was acting on on that show i just had never done it on that show so so no one had been introduced to it publicly but like i know i know i'm a i'm a great i'm fucking i'm a monster (laughs) to myself all the time but like i the two things that stand out to me about that one is boundaries making sure that you're not giving everything of who you are out to everybody Mm -hmm. you know with with like no boundary at all you created that boundary so you only offered now very consciously what you wanted to and then the other part of that too was you were rewriting your own fucking narrative right it's like don't let somebody else pick up your pen when writing your story and so you took it you worked with what you had whatever the mess was there in the moment and you put a spin on it and you were then able able to move forward with that too i think both of those strategies are amazing i love the word squishy there's i do too of, i love that word kind of, uh, that's uh, so great it, there's yeah. such self-knowledge in that about vulnerability and yes. something squishy is should not be exposed it has to be taken care of and yeah i love that um, i do too uh, uh, uh description coco peru is on and we were talking about near death experiences. And this is, I don't know if this is part of the clip, but when she was talking about the most important part of her near death experience, you could hear my dog snoring in the background. She got very angry with me. It was hilarious. Um, but we got a lot of comments on how impactful this story was. Uh, enjoy Coco Peru and her near death experience. I went to see you at the West Beth theater in, um, New York city, Years ago, in before you moved to Los Angeles, where you talked about a near-death experience and the people, and it's, I've never, you talked about it in such graphic detail that it was, it was, it was, it was fascinating and terrifying at the same time. For, not just for you reliving it on stage, but for us as the audience members. Can you walk us through that? I, I don't know why I, well, I know why I did that back mm-hmm. then. I was just much more ex- experimenting. And Mm. I just, I've always been fascinated with storytelling and spoken word. And so I, I was thinking, I wonder how people will receive a story about my accident with some really graphic details. That's just spoken word, as opposed to the really graphic stuff we see on television and in film. Mm. And what amazed me was that um, people had a variety of, of experiences with that story from being completely horrified and even angry that I did it hmm. to other people passing out. This one girl um, had to run out of the room because she got diarrhea. And so I said, I'm going to, I'm going to put that in one of my quotes. I laughed. I cried. I shit in my pants. Um, that was her reaction. But, she, she had diarrhea. Yes. She got diarrhea. And then another, and then other people thought it was completely the most beautiful thing they had ever heard because it put them so in touch with their own life and their own Uh vulnerability. And they, it took them out of their body in some weird way. So it was interesting how just a spoken word about something horrifying could really, and you could, I could hear crackling in the room that the energy was so intense. Coco, I'm, I'm just, I'm just curious for those of us who actually don't know the, the full story, would you mind sharing us the near death experience? Uh, when I was 16, I was getting ready that evening. My parents had gone out for the evening and I was getting into the shower to prepare 
for a high school production of Oklahoma in which I was playing chorus member. And uh, I somehow either passed out or slipped backwards in the shower and ended up going through a glass shower door. It oh. wasn't the actual door. It was a wraparound thing. And mm -hmm. I landed on the glass that was sticking up. Oh. So I severed two and a half nerves in my left leg. And then as I was laying there, the glass started to fall all over. So I was basically wow. cut up. But lacerated. what was so amazing was that I was lacerated. But I was very fortunate because I found out later that if the glass had been about an inch longer, the one, the piece that I landed on, it would have cut my entire leg off. So I was oh very, God. there were so many little things where I got so lucky. Hmm. And um, so when I stood up, what was amazing was that um, I was looking around the shower thinking, who is screaming like that? Hmm. And, and I can look back now and say that, um, I hear someone. <laughs> I think it's Alex's dog. It's my dog. Hold on one second. <laughs> it I knew like, what it was, I thought, but I wasn't going to say anything because I, <laughs> I, I. I hate to say it, but I thought like I'm telling this really horrifying story, and someone's like getting off to it. <laughs> no, it's like, Alex's dog snoring. Someone's let's, totally masturbating while I'm talking about let's dying. Please keep this in the podcast. <laughs> My dog is fast asleep. I just put a blanket over her. She was oh snoring, and I didn't think anybody could hear it. All right. Alex I'm telling dogs my, often make an appearance on the show. My near-death so. experience, and I'm getting upstaged by a dog. <laughs> by a this tweety. is the story of my life, my I darling know, Coco I know. <laughs> Terrible. Anyway, where were we? Blood, gore? You, blood, gore. Yeah, who was somebody that? Somebody was screaming. Yeah, so I... Yeah, so who is that screaming? And uh, <laughs> I was home alone. I had to get to this. I was on the third floor of our home, which was the at converted attic. And I had to get to the second floor to the phone. And it was when I was at the phone that I knew I was dying. Oh. And uh, and because I was losing so much blood. Yes. And, now, um, what, when you're dying, when you said you knew you were dying, was it like an intellectual thing or was it a physical feeling like I am dying? Yeah, good question. I felt it was a physical thing because I could literally feel the life draining out of me. Mm -hmm. I also knew, I knew, I, I, and then the other, it's, it's amazing that, um, this is all upon reflecting upon it. But when I look back, I can see how the mind and the body separated and each mm. were doing what they needed to do in order to survive. So mm. for instance, I was still embarrassed about being found dead naked. And wow. so I thought I've got to get to my parents' bedroom to put on a pair of my father's underwear so that when they find me dead, I won't be naked. Like wow. I was still worried about yeah. that. Yeah. Like the I had all the body convention. shame back then. Yeah. 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 So I get to my parents' bedroom and they have this big mirror in their bedroom. And I remember looking into the mirror, but in order for my uh, body to survive this accident, it was in my mind was immediately erasing the reflection. So I was looking in the mirror, but unable to see my reflection. Because I think my mind knew that if I saw myself, that would be the end. Yeah. And so I got to the front door, I managed to open, I had called an ambulance and a neighbor, and my neighbor tied a tourniquet around my leg. And that's what saved my life. And then I was mm. rushed to the hospital. And it was in the hospital that, where I did die from the loss of blood. And, um, but they brought me back. You were pronounced and dead at some point. 
Well, I don't think they pronounced me dead, but they knew that um, my brother had looked in on me because he was a police officer and they had called him in. And so when he had the doctors had stepped out for a moment and he happened to look in, my eyes had rolled back into my head. So they came rushing back in to bring me back. And so it, I was told that, oh, you, we lost you for a little bit there. You know, that that's mm. the way I was told. I remember uh, that uh, part of the story is you told it when you said it live that the nurses on the floor referred to you as, oh, you were the boy that died. There was one nurse that was, yeah. um, I think she was from possibly um, the Caribbean and she mm-hmm. was very superstitious and she mm. was very curious that this young kid had this near-death experience. So when I woke up from it, she was sitting by my bedside with a bowl of fruit that she had put together for me. And she was very weird, um, Mm -hmm. but in a beautiful way. And she asked me, tell me what you saw. You know, she wanted to know if I had had seen anything. Had you? During that time I was... I, I didn't see anything. I can only describe the experience as I forgot who I was, mm-hmm. but the only reason I know that I forgot who I was was because I remembered who I was. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm. How so? Like in what ways did you? Well, I was just experiencing peace mm. and just very present with that peace. And then all of a sudden, as they started to bring me back, I thought, oh, I I know who I like. I remembered who I was, and I remember thinking, I'm not going back. And then all of a sudden, I like opened my eyes. And as soon as I opened my eyes, I think part of that being human, then I immediately was flooded with fear and the will to survive again. But hmm. for that time that I was dead, I didn't have that desire at all. Now, none of us here at the Hot Mess Podcast is a stranger to toxic relationships. and But the very first time we talked about it at length was with Priyanka, who was winner of Canada's Drag Race. She was their very first queen. Here's Priyanka. All right, listen to me. Because there's something something about you stood out to me. Um, I'm also a gay man of color. And um, mm-hmm. I this is what I'm exploring. Uh, there's two things. One, being repulsed by somebody who likes you. Because I've felt that yeah. before. Of like, all through college, if somebody liked me, it was like, you're a weirdo. That's not what love feels like to me. Uh, uh, what love felt mm-hmm. like to me was like a hot guy who would fuck me and then return my calls every three weeks. Right? That right. was every, like hot. Three, three to four. But, three to but, four. Three to four weeks. Yeah. Yes. But then somebody told me that, oh, this was in that um, somebody who's vulnerable with you and somebody who really likes you, that's the riskier relationship. Yes. That's the more dangerous relationship. And when somebody said that to me, I was like, and I was like, and I, I, I got it because it's like in those relationships, you really have to show up with yeah. and be vulnerable and be open to being loved. And I never got that before. I've also been with people and I'm sure you have too, Alec, that like, oh, I'm only into brown guys. No, bitch, you're fetishizing my skin color. You're not into yeah. you're not into me because of my soul. You're in, into me because of my skin color. Like, oh, you have a fetish to have sex with with, with, with a, an Indian guy? That's like that's not love. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, I could clock that a mile it, away. It's, it's like thing, I could be anybody. A, that's not sexy. To yeah. Me. So now, as you're making the transition into a healthy relationship, what do you feel like is the biggest difference in you? That's a great question, Alec. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Um, You're welcome. I, I would say <laughs> she's my she's my granddaughter. Priyanka's my I'm granddaughter. I'm obsessed with on you. The show. That's, I'm obsessed that's how we, with you. Yeah, that's how we refer to each other. 
Um, What's the biggest difference in you? It has to be the self-worth and it has to be like doing things for me and knowing when someone looks at you for your fame versus looks at you because they could see your soul and connect with it. Like there's mm. been so many, many guys that like, you know, see the sparkly smoke and mirrors Priyanka and, and I, and I've let them in and it's only burned me. And, and with, you mm. know, the latest healthy relationship that I'm in, it's, it's, I could tell he liked me from a year ago. He messaged me that this guy, cause I was trying to get a tattoo cover up, but he's a tattoo artist. And it was never about, Oh, like tell me secrets about drag race. Or it was n- never about, so how'd you start a drag? It was just all about like me as Mark, as a human being. And I think that it, it's, it's knowing and, and you have to be will- willing to accept a more vulnerable side of people is what, is is the hardest thing I've had to do this last couple of months is opening myself up to somebody, but it's been the healthiest thing because I'm accepting love in the way that I deserve it. It was fun talking with Trixie Mattel, not because she's a, a, a superstar on Drag Race, but she's so smart. And uh, here she talks about growing up and dealing with childhood trauma while also poking fun at me. <laughs> Here's Trixie Mattel. Trixie, I'm, I'm kind of curious. I don't want you to, I don't necessarily want you to have to go back and kind of like tell your full story, but but what to you actually are the defining parts of your story about, you know, specifically around things that were maybe traumatic for you, for those who might not know. You came, you brought me here to relive my trauma so you guys could sell ad space. <laughs> pretty much. I know what this is. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. And we'll be right back with Trixie's abuser's mm-hmm. social security number <laughs> yeah. after we talk about Squarespace. No. Squarespace is an easy-to-use platform. <laughs> We're not going to be happy until you actually shit your pants live on the program. Well, until listen. you saw yourself reliving whatever it is you went through. Don't threaten me with a good time. Also, you showed your age twice today, Alec, when you said, I got to get my cheaters, my glasses. Yes. And then you're the only person besides me who calls it a program. <laughs> I'm and old, I don't just say program. I say program. Girl, program. I'm like your grandma. I'm 10 times older than you are. It's, it's, you know what? You were talking earlier about, you know, the, the why me, why me thing is like to be in this business and to be a queer, queer person growing up, our survival depends on a certain amount on, on that resilience because yeah. of all the disappointments we go through. Um, I just did a pilot for ABC. They passed. I was really attached to the income. It's being uh. shopped around. And I have to really kind of, in order to move on, I have to like kind of acknowledge that it sucks and and then kind of move on from it. Because otherwise I'm going to be stuck in that why me, why me thing. Like, and like now I'm already thinking what's next. And I think that as queer people, and would you agree, those are kind of survival skills that we develop as young people who are different? Uh, yeah, because I mean, of, of course, being queer for me was complicating as a child or whatever. But, you know, for me, being gay was like, Honestly, the least of my worries with some of the other stuff I had going on, you know, the, mm-hmm. I don't really talk about it too much, but I mean, they don't even like make movies about the level of physical and sexual abuse mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. went through, you know, mm-hmm. but I guess for me as an adult, speaking to what you're talking about, it's always like, this is what was, what, what chunk of my life was ruined or whatever. Right. Uh-huh. And I always just feel like I, as an adult, that thing at the grocery store you put between your groceries and someone else's. Yeah. Yes. It's like, I could see those groceries. They're not, this is how much I am allowing this to 
occupy. Yeah. Wow. And then this is all what I'm in control of. I mean, I'm not an alcoholic, but I think alcoholics talk about that thing. What is it? The, the courage to control whatever, the wisdom to know what you can control. Yes, yes. Oh, uh, the serenity the Lord prayer. Grab yeah. me the serenity to uh, change yeah. the things I can and uh, to let go of the things I can, the wisdom to know the difference. Something like that. Yeah. yeah, and like even as a queer person, it was like once I realized that wasn't going to go away and it wasn't a phase, it was like, well, I can't really change that. So like what can I do? I just yeah. – in everything, in business, in, in – Everything I always in personal life, I always have like an approach of like, what can I do? I'm like a realistic optimist. I'm like, let's look right at the problem. Yeah. But let's talk solutions, you know? Totally. Mm. Was that an organic thing? Away. Did you like go through therapy or something? Or was it just kind of an organic, conscious like realization that you had about it? I'm just incredibly well adjusted. <laughs> no, what's funny is uh, I, I I don't know. I mean, I always feel funny because People who like Trixie are often people who have some sort of mental illness, people with depression. I think it's because I have a very dark, dry, stale sense of humor. Mm. That was probably a huge pad for me um, as an adult or as a young person. I started playing guitar at 12. I had this huge outlet. I did nothing but play music. I loved it. Um, I was good at school. I got, you know, almost perfect grades. I think I just lucked out in that. I had things to focus on that I could control that I liked. Mm. I don't know. I think yeah. that's what I, I really lucked out in that way. And it's funny to be a cross-dresser of almost 15 years and tell everyone that you're well-adjusted. <laughs> like, <laughs> I do think at 18, 17, finding cross-dressing, being able to step out of yourself, being able to, and I had this vision for Trixie where it was like, okay, there's this doll, this toy that I always wanted. I always loved Barbie. I mean, my, I used to go to the, I wasn't allowed to have Barbie, but I used to go to the stores and go to the toy aisle and just like hold her this close to my face. Mm. And just like, I wanted to be in that box. I mean, the way toys are displayed, everything is perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, and I love the Brady Bunch. I loved very idyllic, you know, astroturf families. And I love that. Yeah. And to me, the fantasy of that and then creating Trixie, who is sort of her biggest issue is what she's going to wear that day. It was really healthy for me, I think, to be able to really step out of my real life. Sherry Vine is a living legend. That means she's been around a long time. I mean, about as long as me. And uh, <laughs> here she talks about her excitement about being on the show and to talk about aging. Here's Sherry Vine. <laughs> but I was listening to your conversation and it was fascinating. And I was really excited to to be a guest today because I was like, oh, these are things that we never talk about. I never talk about. That's what the and, show's about. And in drag. Yeah. And yeah. so, and for someone who's older than all of you, um, I was like, oh, this will be, this is cool. I never, uh, I'm stepping out of my comfort zone. And so, yay. Yeah. Well, you totally. are the It's interesting, right? Woman. Because we, because we are, we always talk about, uh, like at this point now too, we're talking so much about kind of privilege and marginalization and all that stuff. This is, this is one area where we all have privilege at one point and then move into a marginalized place. So we all benefit from talking about it, but none of us really want to like talk about it. <laughs> it's so interesting. Yeah. And I think that there's, uh, certainly, a different spin on aging for gay men as opposed to heterosexual men. I mean, there just is. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, it's very different. And then add that dr to drag on top of that. And when your character is, you know, the sex kitten, it's like, yeah. 
how long am I going to hold on to that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. On aging, what what are the major anxieties? Like for me, it's kind of like the feeling of, am I going to be excluded? Am I going to be, you know, marginalized? That's the fear for yeah. me. Yeah. Honey, absolutely. As a performer. I mean, I will just say everything that we're going to talk about today is under a huge umbrella of gratitude that I'm as old as I am because yes. I have Me too. half of my friends that didn't make it to 30. So yeah. everything that we're complaining about or talking about today is under an umbrella of gratitude. Agreed. I'm yeah. thankful to be, I just turned 57, uh, um, which I usually never say out loud, but I'm like thankful for that. And like Alec, you mentioned earlier, I mean, I, I am happier. I am genuinely happier today than I was when I was 27. Me mm -hmm. too. Cynthia Lee Fontaine was on the show. She is pure sunshine. And of course, my dogs interrupted the podcast again. See, this is what happens when you record out of your own house. Here's Cynthia Lee Fontaine being interrupted by my dog. You're saying the Puerto Rican culture did not kind of have room for you to be yourself growing up? Or do you feel like that was with your mother? Did you not feel, because my next question is what, if your mother felt betrayed, what, what was the thing that kept you from telling her? Was it your culture? Well, actually for me, it was like more family, um, you know, like statements and situation. Mm. Half of my family is Catholic and half of my family is seven day Adventist church. Oh, And actually, me, myself, back in the days, I have two gospel albums. I was very active into the Seven-day Adventist church, you mm. know, um, like very active member of the church. And me, like coming out and expressing myself, me, my sexuality, it was very tough because already I knew, you know, what was the religious beliefs from my family. But at the same time, it was like fears. I was like, just like, you know, fighting with my giants in my head of mm. the stigma and discrimination that I built up myself mm. because as soon as my family knew, everybody was like hugging me, supporting me, saying like, we love you the way that you are. You're an amazing individual, Carlos. And whatever you want to dress, if you want to dress like, you know, like Wanda or Belinda, we love you so very much. Yeah. And we know the type of individual and adult you become. We love you. And this is a, a family of love and support. So don't you being afraid for this stigma that society predisposed right. in your mind, it's mm. incorrect because us in our family, we love you and we're going to love you forever. And we're going to support you forever. So it was me in my head and my 75 voices in my head. Me, no, don't come out to your family. <laughs> yeah. But I also, I also love specifically what your family said, which is they acknowledge the fact that there's a societal impact, right? Like that they can acknowledge that there's internalized homophobia, queer phobia, that happens to us where it does create those voices. It's not like we just make them up, right? It's because of the world yes. that we live in, um, but also acknowledging that it's not a problem for them and that it was so, that they were happy that you were able to come out. I guess I'm just kind of curious on the, on the timeline of it. Did you, did you come out to yourself like first as, uh, as, as gay did, like what, how, how do you identify and, and when did you come up um, with an understanding of those? Well, um, Already in 2006, I was living a lifestyle as, you know, part of the gay community, you know, mm -hmm. I was, um, you know, freak, like frequently going to the gay bars and even like I went to gay prides too, but 
for that period of time, 2006, I went already to three great, great prides in Puerto Rico, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was identifying myself. I knew who I was. It was just only like me, my fear to right. come out of the closet, you know? And uh, something, Matthew and, and you, um, Alec, that you were telling, come on, dog. Rawr. Yeah, oh, it's my dog. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is the same yeah. dog that it's works. our third host. <laughs> yeah. This is dog oh, that he... snored through Miss Coco's near death experience <laughs> interview. Hold on. I love that. That's a, that's a real homosexual. I love that. Yes, doggy. You know? <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ. It's part right. of the community. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Um, I want to answer something real quick. Um, I think Puerto Rican society and also the Hispanic community in general, is they have a opertoire, you know, like we said in French, like that opening a little bit more for the queer, the queer community. Mm -hmm. And that's beautiful. That's really good. You know, back in the days, it used to be rough. But now we have the opportunity, like me, myself, maybe probably I can stop by in a gas station in Puerto Rico like this. And people is going to be instead of like, oh, look at that gay or maybe probably slangs, you know, derogatory words. They're going to be like, oh, my God, I love your makeup. Mija, que bonita tu era. You're so beautiful. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. But it's still, you know, in baby steps, you know, for acceptance, for yes. this queer diversity that yes. still like exists and it's going to be forever here. And it's nothing to worry about, you know. We are beautiful. We're gorgeous. This is who we are. And we need to yeah. be proud of it. Totally. Yeah. And of course, that's a process as is coming out. I always kind of get flustered a little bit. It takes me a minute when people say, like, when did you come out? Because it's a little bit like, well, what does that mean? I don't know. I came out to myself at a certain age. I came out to friends at a different time. I came out to my family at a different time. You know, I came out publicly. So, you know, it's it's such kind of a, a, a process and, and different stages. When, when was it that you were um, acknowledging for yourself and coming out just even to yourself? I think it was the moment that I started dra doing drag for oh, myself, wow. you know, mm. like I started doing this Cynthia. Yeah. Um, I think to artistry, I found that myself, the validation of like, Hey, you're gay. You're part of this community. Look yeah. at you. And it was, I remember the first day that I performed, it was, a, it was a horrible wig. It was a $25 two dress that I wear. I did a <laughs> lip sync. I grabbed the microphone. I did the host of my life and I see the acceptance and I see the love and support of the community. I'm like, yeah. you know what? I do not need to deny my femininity. Yeah. I need to express it. Let her out. Let her be. And also that made me, you know, um, you know, verbalize and, you know, make more visible my sexual orientation as a gay, gay man, part of the community. So right. I think that was the moment that I realized like, girl, hell yeah. hell, you like yeah. boys. Boys <laughs> like you. Yeah. <laughs> Once again, I want to thank you all for, uh, for joining us each week. Um, don't forget to download and subscribe. You can find um, Matthew Dempsey on his socials at MJ Dempsey Psych at Instagram. You can find me at Alec Mappa on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at The Hot Mess Pod. We love hearing from you. Tune in next week. We'll have more hot mess fun. Goodbye. This has been a Stage 29 podcast production. The podcast is executive produced by Patty Chiano, Laferne Cusack, and Stephanie Kaysen. Our audio editors are Jackson Ruff and Jonathan DeMatty. Callie Kelts is the social media producer. And a special thanks to the rest of our podcast crew, Rwani Horinage, William Cusack, Lisa Clark, Katie Brown, and Morgan Kaler. 
This podcast has been produced by Stage 29 Productions for entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice, do not reflect the opinions of this company, any of its parent companies, affiliates, subsidiaries, promotional sponsors, or advertising agencies. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. For more information, please go to stage29.tv.